we do have now more than a million soldiers fighting uh, in the war and who are wearing heavy uh, ammunition and who are not used to have this extra heavy load on their back, on, on their spine, on their muscles. This is a very often cause of non-specific back pain. And every second one, maybe even more, do have complaints on back pain. To my humble opinion, I think it's a war that has changed the world order. And this is the event that didn't happen for 100 years. It's such huge global consequences in terms of energy, food, grain, economics, everything. It's really not a local, it's a conflict with global consequences. And unfortunately, it is happening in my country, in my homeland. When you see a picture on a piece of paper, a newspaper on the screen of your laptop or smartphone, it's not the same as if you are staying there, if you hear waves of the explosions, if you hear sound alarms and when you wake up, not with an alarm on your clock, but with an air raid alarm. Pain is some serious business. It ain't everyone who knows what to do about it. Now I hear there's a podcast just about this. It doesn't talk of pain alone, but other interesting things distracting the mind from it. So I suggest you tune in to Outsmart the Pain and listen to what Karsten has to say about it. Get ahead. Get it done. Listen to the podcast and maybe change your life or someone else's. My dear listeners who follow this pod, you know that we talk about pain sometimes, and sometimes we actually don't say a word about pain. Today I have a somewhat difficult podcast for me, actually, because I'm talking to a very prominent guest. He's a well-known guy within the pain sphere. He's a physician, a pain specialist, but he lives in Ukraine. And we all know what is happening there. It's kind of hard to talk about difficult things like a war and everything that's happened. So we'll see what happens in this pod. What do you think about it? You are so warmly welcome, Volodymyr. So nice to have you here in this show. Uh, thank you very much, Karsten, for inviting me. It's a big pleasure to talk to you and to have a chance to spread some words and maybe share some information and and current status updates on the questions of interest to, to your respectful audience. So thank you very much again for, for having me. When I have been talking with my colleagues about different things in the pain field throughout Europe, your name has really come up early in the discussion. You are really someone that people know about before the war as well. I mean, you are a well-known person within the pain field. But... Uh, for the listener who, who is just, you know, someone that found this strange pod and now is wondering, but who is this Volodymyr? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Well, first of all, I'm a human being <laughs> and I'm a citizen of Ukraine and I was born and raised in Ukraine. 
I can talk about it a little bit uh, later. But speaking about pain, I'm a physician by training. I'm a neurologist. And I was deeply interested and involved in the uh, area of pain medicine since, I think, third year of medical school. So I kind of got this interest very, very early. And I was uh, one of the founders of Ukrainian Pain Society, Ukrainian Association for the Study of Pain, 12 years ago when we gathered first physicians who were interested in improvement of pain management in Ukraine and study of pain medicine and advancing pain medicine education and other aspects of it. That's kind of my background. 12 years story of my engagement in this area. And of course, during that course of time, I had a pleasure and privilege and honor to meet a lot of very respectful colleagues from all around the world and learn from them and, and share with them our experiences, get a chance to get their feedback and their experience. I have the deepest respect for all different disciplines in medicine, you know, GPs, radiologists, rheumatologists, anesthetists, but there is someone uh, I really admire that's the neurologist. <laughs> uh, we will be talking to another neurologist later on this fall because the relationship between pain and neurology is quite uh, strong sometimes. Not only uh, if you have a neurological disorder or that you actually is saying that chronic or persistent pain is actually a part of the neurological system, so to speak, but also a lot of patients who think that they do have a neurological disorder that causes the pain and you kind of need to exclude that. So the neurologist is really, really important. But what I really admire is that I don't think I've met any discipline that are so well read upon all the different diagnosis. And it's like talking to a book. <laughs> the neurologist is so knowledgeable. And if there is some strange symptoms, they always they say some kind of strange long name about a study that they made in 1960. And they followed up in 1980. And I just try to look like I know what they're talking about, but I have no idea. <laughs> so I must ask you, how come you chose neurology? Was it just by chance? Or were you really interested in that field from the beginning? That's very, very interesting and tricky question because I think that I have chosen it by myself, by some studying and preparation. But my father is a neurologist. Oh. My father is a neurologist, so I had a chance to observe the person and see different peculiarities of clinical work and peculiarities of specialty. But to be honest, at the beginning, I wanted to become a neurosurgeon because in my understanding, it was the profession and medical specialty more closely related to God when as a person who is in charge of human brain, who can physically speak and fix it in very complicated situations, highly admirable. Since I was not probably very keen to be working deeply and heavily in the neurosurgical sphere. Some period of time during the medical school, I slightly <laughs> switched to neurology. I was also considering gastroenterology and then the cardiology, but speaking with some colleagues of mine who told me that neurology is so much complicated, you will never get bored. Mm. And that was like a <laughs> probably true <laughs> argument for me. 
uh, and it's really true you never start learning you sometimes uh, forgetting all those complicated names and diagnoses that existed uh, 100 years ago so you always keep yourself up to date by the different things i think it's uh, much easier to differentiate to pain medicine because without nerves there would be no pain and people would not feel pain with a neurological background again my subjective opinion it's kind of easier to understand the complexity of pain phenomena and different approaches to to treatment Talking about neurosurgery, I must tell you a funny story um, at the neurosurgical department at uh, Karolinska Hospital. I had a colleague who did a study and he wanted to see really old journals. I mean, really old journals, like from the beginning of the department or something. He said that they had one line that said follow up after three months of the surgery. And there were two boxes that you could tick. And the two choices after three months of the surgery was one, got better, two, dead. <laughs> so it, it was kind of a binary kind of treatment in those times. But now neurosurgery is very, very advanced, actually. Oh, yes. All the surgery oh, yes. and 3D imagery and, and all those things. And pain and neurology... Did you start into the pain field very early or was it something that grew when you got older and wiser? <laughs> <laughs> By the luck of the fate, I started very early. I remember I was one of the neurological conferences and I remember I got a conversation with one of the prominent professors in, in the area. I think actually he was from the neurophysiology and he started to tell me about this pain and I was thinking, okay, pain. That was like a start, and then I started to dig into it and found a lot of information on the internet, a lot of journals, a lot of papers. I was lucky to start very early, maybe four years of medical school. Excellent. <laughs> Talking about, say, five years ago or something, how would you describe the situation for patients with pain in Ukraine? We know that globally it doesn't look very well. The medical profession doesn't really know too much about persistent pain, at least in Sweden. And I know elsewhere there are uh, not too many pain specialists. But what was the situation in your country? It's getting better. It's uh, just complicated to compare it country to country. But overall, it, it's much better, much better today, much better now. Most progress is connected with recent years advances. When I just started uh, pain management, we had a lot of problems in Ukraine, which I am, which I will tell you now, and uh, which <laughs> may sounds so archaic to you and, and, and so archaic to, to me and to, to Ukrainian doctors as well. But 10 years ago, we had almost a zero rate of opioid prescriptions for pain patients. A lot of patients needed some strong opioids for pain relief, and they were just not receiving it because of some fears or other reasons. And it was horrible, and nothing like that today. Ten years ago, opioid was available, but the forms of opioids was very limited. We had morphine, for example, only for intravenous injections. We didn't have any tablets. We didn't have any 
oral forms, no prolonged forms as well. Later on, morphine tablets appeared, but the patient who needed to take it had to put it on a clock, alarm every four hours, don't sleep more than four hours, and it was like, again, today we have uh, different forms. We have patches, we have uh, sprays, we have uh, oral forms with uh, the start of the active phase of the uh, war in Ukraine. We received a lot of drugs that are registered in European Union. It's very, very good for our patients. Speaking in general, maybe I'll spend a few minutes answering on your question because it's kind of big and robust. Like again, 10 years ago, almost nobody, like 90 plus percent of doctors didn't understand what is pain and what is pain medicine and what's pain management. Why should you treat the symptom, just give diclofenac or ibuprofen and uh, forget about it. Why should we talk about it? We didn't have any publication. I did a study uh, like four years ago. There was zero pain-related publications. Now we have uh, three or four journals. We have thousands of papers. We have many conferences, courses, seminars, uh, schools on pain, and pain education is much, much better uh, on the postgraduate level. We have translated and adapted European pain curricula for undergraduate education, and we tried to adapt it in a medical school, and we did it in two schools. I'm sure it's just a question of the time. So a lot of actually advances has been made in terms of education and clinical management pain practitioners were all waiting for new molecules, new, new therapeutical targets. And I really hope that some pro promising preclinical studies will transform to the clinical sphere soon. There are still patients who are, who are suffering and who need chronic pain management and chronic care. And one of the things we are missing, I think, today in Ukraine is truly a multimodal, multidisciplinary pain centers and multimodal programs because they are quite costly and expensive everywhere. And currently in Ukraine, we don't have an insurance which could cover it. And we do not have, of course, a lot of people who could afford it from their own pocket. So that's why probably this area in Ukraine still needs improvement. And unfortunately, I don't know when it will be improved because it's um, very tightly related to uh, financing. You have actually told us now that 10 years ago, no one knew much about pain at all among your colleagues and patients did not, for instance, get opioids when they needed, which actually probably is true in some countries still in the world, like uh, Southern Americas and in some Arabic countries where you're not kind of allowed to use it. So that's a really big problem because we know that opioids need to be used in some cases actually. Now you do have a lot of different formulations of opioids, not only the intravenous injections. You also said that it has been an expansion of uh, journals and papers and conferences and you are being very diplomatic but I strongly feel that you had some big part of that so so that's really really impressive i'm so happy to hear this the multidisciplinary team that we often talk about in sweden and other countries that's of course very 
important and that's what you lack. On the other hand, there are a lot of things that you can do without the team. Uh, to, the teams are not mutually exclusive, that nothing works if you don't have a team. But it would be fun after the bad times to maybe cooperate and start talking about how we can help each other with maybe financial but also organizational how the multidisciplinary teams could work for instance so a lot of things to do when we talk about patients with pain the figure that always is around is about one out of five patients 20 percent have persistent or chronic pain in sweden it's around that figure 19 20 percent we talk about a quite old study by harald breivik who published that one the last name that unfortunately is the same as a mass murderer in norway i would really like that Harald could keep his name for himself because he's really great and very, very academic uh, scholar. He's very, very, very good. So he, he did this study, but there have been other ones that have kind of confirmed that figure. Uh, do you think that 20% would be the right range in Ukraine as well? One out of five patients? that suffer from persistent pain? I do think so. We uh, did some comparatory questionnaires-based studies, and we get this number about 22-23% as well. There are other papers recently published. One was from the European Journal of Pain 2019. It was indicated uh, the number 40%. But I think one out of five is more or less uh, objective number for most of the at least mm. European countries. But today in Ukraine, because of war, I think we will have a shift in this number in, in the direction of increasing because we do have now more than a million men fighting in the war and who are wearing heavy ammunition and who are not used to have this extra heavy load on their back and on their spine and their muscles. And this is a very often cause of non-specific back pain in soldiers. There are more than a million of them already. And every second one, maybe even more, do have complaints on back pain. So now we may say that at least half a million, we have plus at least half a million of cases of back pain related to war-related activities and uh, wearing of heavy ammunition. And uh, we may say that this shift today, of course, there are no, no studies. It's very hard to, to do it all quickly, dynamically changing. But we may say it's a prevalence probably higher in, in Ukraine uh, nowadays. Yeah. And talking about the brain, if you have this huge load of, like you say, ammunitions and weapons and everything else on your body the whole day that you really need to carry, plus the psychological stress being shot at or having to leave your relatives at home or whatever it is, that combination, we know that that predisposes for persistent pain. So of course that number will get higher. One of my previous guests, Dr. Dominic Aldington from Great Britain, who is a very wise clinician, he has been working in the military as a doctor and an officer, and he has been treating uh, British soldiers coming back with war wounds and amputations of mines and, and things like that. 
yeah, it will probably increase, unfortunately. And your country now, uh, I could say that I ask easy or silly questions because the listener doesn't know everything, but it's actually that I don't know anything. But how many people live in Ukraine? Like 40 million? According to latest statistical European data you can find on Wikipedia, it's 44 million. 44 million. Hmm. 44 million. Now, according to cross-border statistics, around 6 million has fleeted their homes in the last four months. So it's like 15% of the country's population, 6 hmm. million out of 44 has, has uh then you would actually expect that around 10 million people would have persistent pain in in the end so to say if that's 25 percent or something like that so it's a really vast number but for someone in sweden we haven't had war for 200 years and like everyone else we kind of think that the war that affects us is because prices get higher and inflation and something that I understand that you just shake your head. How can you think about prices when we are dying in my country? But in some way, I think that it's the brain that tries to protect us, just like starving people, that when we don't get it really close, we kind of shut it off. So that's one of the reasons I talk to you, because I really think that we should talk about what's happening in your country, to be honest. To start, actually... Before the war, what was your relationship with Russia and the Russians? I mean, we read a lot in the papers, but I want to hear it from someone who actually knows and lives in that country. Were you two people that hated each other or do you have a lot of connections with families living in both countries? How did it work before the war? Yeah, well, it's a complicated question to give reliable and objective, unbiased answer. And maybe people who are professionally studying history could answer it better, but I will try. Of course, we historically, we do have close ties with Russia because we originated from one country, Soviet Union, and we were there together for 70-something years. We obtained our independence in 1991 when the Soviet Union broke apart. Prior to to it, we had, well, not domination, but prevalence in in some areas of Russian culture and Russian history. And uh, after it, it started to slowly and gradually uh, go down. And uh, I think this um, history is the reason of today's war because uh, a lot of people who were geographically living closer to Russian border, were speaking Russian language in their everyday life, were very close to Russian culture and maybe not so close to Ukrainian culture, even though they were, but Russian presidents thought that they are Russian, of course, if they live near our border, if they speak Russian, then they're our people and we can count on them and we can count that they will be happy to return to Russia or join Russia or whatever. That's how it was. But actually, Ukraine is much older than Russia and Kyiv is one of the oldest cities in Eastern Europe. It's much older than Moscow and, and St. Petersburg, which is only 300 years something old. So it is a, a place where uh, Orthodox Christianity bring Christianity from Greece to, to Kyiv. And then it spread it to Moscow and to other parts of, uh, of Russia. So his- historically, Ukraine is the motherland of all 
Rus and Russian actually uh, lands. But of course, today Russian propaganda changes because they are bigger, because they have not nuclear power and a lot of armor. They think they can uh, dictate and make their own version of history. Again, historically speaking about two, three, four generations who are alive and living today. They, myself, was born in Soviet Union. We uh, had this common ground. But uh, after 1991, I think our roads split it uh, a little bit. This is maybe uh, my personal uh, thoughts and ideas. I'm not so competent in this um, areas and questions. I wish I would be more competent, but I think <laughs> I'm, I'm getting more and more, uh, even um, un unconsciously. I think because every nation had to go through some war to gain its independence and to get together closely as a one nation, as a one people. In 1991, it was so peacefully. Soviet Union broke apart. 15 republics became independent and that's it. So it was like a gift. And uh, there is nothing free in this world, only cheese in the mouse catcher. So today, probably, unfortunately, but maybe historically or philosophically or spiritually, somehow maybe we need to pay such high price for our independence and for independence of Europe. I think because Ukraine today is a safeguard of all European countries from this uh, aggression that is coming from Russia. Mm. Say from 91 and, and forward, did you feel that there was always a risk of Russia attacking you? Or was this just like a big surprise that suddenly they started to become very aggressive and started this war? I think first 10 years, almost nobody paid attention to it because we had other problems, economical troubles, problems of building up our own independent country. And we were not thinking about it and talking about it. And the same was referred to Russia. They had different presidents and they had, again, uh, different challenges to form Russia as a uh, standalone country. I think it took 10 years when there were different priorities, but starting from 2000s, yeah, like from, I think smart people already uh, started to see first signs. Of course, uh, I, I was not one of the smart people who foreseen and then catch this first signs of um, uh, danger. I was deeply engaged in my uh, professional activities and uh, was badly oriented in politics and uh, was not uh, thinking about politics. As many people, they care about their work, they have to have some food so, and not thinking about things that is not directly related to them. So th there were some smart people who uh, foreseen it and who were telling about it. And now you can read it. They, they published books, uh, papers, they give an interview on television and everything. But of course, since they were few, not too many people listened to them or, or believed how could it be. We were friends, we uh, originated from the same country. How could it possible be? And I was um, so silly to think this way as well. But the things turned out totally uh, different, uh, unfortunately. Again, I think that's the normal way to react, actually. I see the same thing here in Sweden, that we can't really expect to be attacked. But the authorities send out all this information about how to prepare and things that they did during the Cold War. That's not a coincidence that that kind of information starts now. Only six months ago, no one in Sweden was talking about or 
thought that we would apply for a NATO membership. That wasn't a question. Now we're actually applying together with Finland and that kind of changed really, really quick. So of course things happen very, very fast. Are you in Ukraine now? What's your personal situation now? With my wife, we flee the Ukraine. We moved to Poland. Now we are temporary in Austria. Of course, it's not permanent and we plan to return to Ukraine. But for now, we are here in Ukraine. We're observing all these bomb shieldings and, and bomb shieldings and all other atrocities. Uh, we left our home in Kiev on the first day of war when the Russian troops attacked Kiev. And the second day, there were tents in our garden and we saw it. We saw it on TV. Oh, you were lucky there. Yes, we were lucky because the first month was very active everywhere. Now, the situation in Kiev and in western and central parts of Ukraine in terms of ground is uh, more or less stable. But of course, the threat of air bombing is persisted and uh, we had a very Uh, heavy bombing of Vinitsa, center of Vinitsa. It's a regional a city, big city with about uh, half of a million population. And the Russians uh, striked three missiles in the residential center of the city, just central square of the city where people used to be there. And I think it's a real terroristic act. Unfortunately, not any city in Ukraine is protected against these air uh, missiles. Yeah. I'm talking to you today, both because you're from Ukraine, but you're a, a pain specialist. But I actually have another guest who is a young woman who's living in Ukraine. And we were supposed to have an interview as well these days. But due to one of these attacks, she was really so upset and sad. So she couldn't really make an interview, she said. Uh, she wanted to because she really wants to tell the world as well. But uh, she just couldn't handle it because it's so terrible. We sit on a safe distance here in Sweden and don't quite understand what's happening every day there, to be honest. You've been outside of Ukraine for a short time now with your wife. I'm very happy to hear that because I think you can do a lot from outside because that's needed too. But your first thoughts when you came at this time to another country, what do you think about Europe's stance on this war? What were your thoughts when you came to the middle of Europe? How do you think that we are reacting to it or not reacting to it? Or any spontaneous thoughts? Uh, well, uh, it is my subjective opinion, of course, but I'd like to uh, thank all, all European countries for support. I think every country provides support in uh, their own means and, uh, and terms and, and capacity, they can do it. And I think most of the Europeans are standing with Ukraine. I saw a huge support in Poland, uh, just on the streets, everywhere, um, Ukrainian flags. When I was walking on the street, I saw, I think, three or four demonstrations in support of Ukraine, some fundraising, some media grabbing attention and activities and, and, and so on. I didn't see so much of activities in Austria, I see people are living their life, and that was kind of unexpected for me because we are used to air raids and air danger alarms almost every day. We are used to this limitation of 
mobility during night time when no one is allowed to exit house and be on the street unless it's police uh, or national guard and this was strange for me after after all the time of war in ukraine to see that actually people in europe are continuing to live their everyday life i was observing huge support from from the people uh, on the street, regular people in Poland, and I think very, very important. It, of course, helps emotionally uh, and uh, supports a lot of people. But, of course, today, as our president says and other military officials, we need uh, weapons. Uh, we need heavy weapons to protect our land and to protect all Europe. And we're able to uh, hold the situation, control the situation, and I hope will be able to change the situation in our favor in the near uh, future. To my humble opinion, I think it's a war that has changed the world order. And this is the event that didn't happen for 100 years. It's such huge global consequences in terms of energy, food, grain, agroeconomics, everything. It's really not a local, it's conflict with global consequences. And unfortunately, it is happening in my country, in my homeland. And I, I really, really hope as everyone, I really hope that it will finish as soon as possible and with as least as possible deaths and uh, destructions. Yeah. And when you come to Europe and see the everyday life that's going on, do you feel that it's kind of that you can feel uh, calm that finally you're coming to some place where it's normal or do you i don't know get angry because how can they live like this when there's a european war how do you react i know that's kind of, of a personal I, question you don't have to answer it but but to no, you know, get a feeling how you what would you think i will answer with pleasure uh, of course i didn't get angry because if i would put myself on the, the place of someone here, I probably would behave the same way because I'm just not aware. And even though I read some news in the media, they, of course, do not reflect the real situation. When you see a picture on a piece of paper, a newspaper on the screen of your laptop or smartphone, it's not the same as if you are staying there, if you hear waves of the explosions, if you hear sound alarms and when you wake up not with an alarm on your clock, but with an air raid alarm. When you see it with your own eyes, it's totally, totally different. It's like to see the strawberry on the promo on, of some newspaper of the supermarket and uh, see the strawberry on the ground or in your hands and feel the and smell and, and, and everything. So it's totally different. But emotionally, of course, I may say that I'm even more connected with Ukraine now, I'm following all the updates and news even more often and more closely. And I'm trying, of course, to uh, continue and to help in my terms and my ways uh, every day. Like every citizen of Ukraine is doing everything he or she could. If you would describe how it was in Ukraine, now that you said that it's not the same thing to see a picture in the newspaper, how was your everyday life during the war? How would you describe it? Um, it, it was different. I will try to generalize for better understanding. First two, three weeks were total stress, total fear, total absence of understanding what would be next in all the companies 
all the people and everywhere. There was huge migration. The highest migration happened during the first two, three weeks. And after it, slowly, gradually, everyone started to see that, unfortunately, it, it will be going for some period of time. Everybody have to work because a lot of people moved and didn't work. And everybody need to earn money to be able to buy food, to be able to pay for a house. So after two, three weeks, I would say people gradually started to return to their places of work. A lot of people transformed to working online. And speaking about doctors, we had the highest number of online consultations during the first two, three, four weeks when a lot of pain patients moved away and they still needed help and they couldn't have it because the telecommunication channel was the only one. But after after that, they were able to find another doctor, so they returned to the homes and their doctors returned to the home. So it's become more or less as before. And we also had some shortage of medications during the first weeks of the war because there were no new supplies and the old stocks are shortened very quick. But now new logistics chains are established and there is no problem with disposables for surgeries, for operations. There is no problem with medications. And most of the people return to, to their homes if their home is not located, of course, near the front line. Mm. We had a lot of hospitals, private clinics closed again first weeks, and those who were open, they were only preparing to admit people from the front line. So it was 100% military-oriented, but now military hospitals are separate. They are doing their job, and the civil hospitals, civil private clinics are doing their regular operations again if you would come to kiev to lviv to other city again that is not near the front line of the war you will see that the foundation of economics are working all the small businesses are working like cafe grocery stores um, uh, now gas stations are working more or less normally as well the um, biggest threat uh, today is this um, air missiles that can unexpectedly at any moment hit any place in a country. Mm -hmm. I would say that this is a transformation of life of Ukrainian people and and Ukrainian doctors. Mm. So Ukraine is somewhat bigger than Sweden, like a third bigger than Sweden, I think. Just so the listeners from Sweden get some kind of thoughts. Other listeners maybe think that Sweden is Switzerland. I have no idea. But still, are are there parts in Ukraine that are kind of not affected of the war at all? That just know that there is a war, but we don't actually see it? Or is the whole country involved in in the war with attacks and uh, soldiers going to war and so on? I think every uh, region of Ukraine received at least one missile. But again, the severity of the damage is different. Of course not. Everyone is involved. Everyone is working towards sustaining the economy, towards supporting people in army. We have a huge volunteer movement today. Everyone almost frankly everyone involved in it people are gathering first aid 
kids, people are gathering some special tactics, clothes and ammunition and supply to the front line. People are gathering some food bags for those who are near the front line and cannot move. So everywhere, every city, every small village is involved everywhere. Mobilization is going on everywhere. So people all over of Ukraine are getting mobilized to the military, to the National Guard, to the Territory Defense Unit. Of course, it is a global problem in all Ukrainian situation and everyone is involved deeply. Speaking of the damage, of course, the more Western it is, the damage is lower because it's more Western. Again, it's only by the air missiles. So most damage right now is air strikes and they can actually occur anywhere. You said before that you, of course, had close connections with Russia before. And I guess that there are many families that have Russian relatives or friends before the war. How would you say that that communication is now? Is it like the Russian friends to the Ukrainian people have they said that this is a fair war, that we should attack you, or is it just quiet, they don't have any contact, or do they say we don't really agree with our regime? Do you have any thoughts on that? Because that must be quite difficult to understand how people who are friends suddenly become enemies during war. It's terrible. Yes, it's very, very terrible and difficult question. I may tell you that it's, of course, different. Uh, I'm mostly had contacts and relationship with doctors in Russia who are well-educated people and who clearly understand what's going on. So of course, they support Ukraine, but in silence because they cannot say anything because today in Russia, there is such conditions. If they would say something publicly, they will easily go to jail for seven, 10 years right next day. And it's very, very easy. If they will post something on the social media, or even if they would publicly say it. I heard one story of the teacher in Russian schools who had the uh, lesson in front of their pupils. She said that this war, this is genocide of Ukraine, this is an act of terrorism. In two hours, internal central intelligence uh, service in Russia came and arrested her, and she is now in jail. Mm. People in, in Russia, in opposition to, to the Russian president and um, the government, tried to go to the meetings, but they were arrested again, like next minute. Again, uh, very difficult for me to say, are there enough such people there? But unfortunately, most of them, and I had this conversation recently, in, in the schools, yeah, like 90% of children, children, Russian children in, in the schools, they support the war. They say uh, Putin is a great guy, he's doing good things. And if children are saying this, that means their parents in their families are saying this, are thinking this, and the propaganda is working perfectly. Mm. I was thinking about the best word to describe it, and I think they are just zombies. And that's a, that's a terrible situation, I think, for Russian people and for Russian population, because it's at least for two, three generations has to pass since this situation will change, because if it's in the minds of the children from the early years, it, it will not change when they get older, unfortunately. And this is really dramatically. Back to your original question about people who had relatives there. I personally have three stories 
of friends of mine who have uh, some really close relatives, sisters, brothers, mothers, parents in Russia, who stopped all the communications with them because of the totally different point of view. Their, mm. again, brothers or, or mothers in Russia saying, hey, you have uh, fascists in Ukraine, you have Nazis in Ukraine, we are freeing you, we are doing good things to you. And when they hear that actually, actually you are destroying our country, we used to live very, very good uh, with, without you, they just don't believe. And, and that's not, again, strangers. Mm. It's brothers, it's mothers. It's a strategy for, for families, I think, because they are not communicating at all. War destroys so much, not only buildings, but relationships. Talking about Russian doctors or scientists, there has been a debate in, in Sweden and of course elsewhere if we should boycott all Russians that are participating in events abroad. And some people say that yes, we should because then it's really a pressure against the regime that they will have no exchange with sports or science or whatever. And others say that, well, the scientists aren't really the war monglers out there. So you should continue with the communication. What is your view on that? Uh, it's a good question. My view as Ukrainian, and in Ukraine, we stopped all the... Uh, relations and communications with Russian professional colleagues. Some people were we are in touch, but it's just like personal messages. They are supporting us and saying that, well, we are sorry. We cannot do anything about it. We are sorry. We are like a hostage of our regime and we need our work. And if we say something, we will lose it in, in the best case scenario. In the worst case, we go to jail. In Ukraine, of course, we have full boycott of all professional Uh, scientific uh, relations with Russian scientists and, and clinicians. Uh, regarding Europe, uh, I know there are a debate and different professional societies behave different way. Some of them totally terminated and excluded or temporarily excluded or, or, or temporarily suspended the membership or participation or something like that. And it's really a d d difficult question because there are a lot of smart people, good people, And to ban them totally, it may not be fair for them, but when the war goes on, what kind of fairness can we talk about? And it's a very, very difficult question. I'm really happy that I don't have to take this decision. Some people are saying, if you don't like living, in Russia just move away and I actually think that this would be the only option again for the next 20-30 years I think for people educated smart people who want to live there will be no freedom of research and work and live for them but again it's kind of generalistic thoughts and maybe easy to say hard to do and that are touching so many other aspects of life and I don't think I'm a person who can judge and uh, advise and uh, answer this question. It's a difficult question. And again, speaking about Ukraine, no, we do not have any connections. Speaking about Europe, I think you should think about particular cases and the scientific and clinical value. Yes, and, and of course, there are different 
opinions around Europe as well, to be honest. To kind of wrap this up, I think that we have had a quite almost diplomatic talk. I know that you could say a lot of things that has been happening, so to say. This has, for me, been a really interesting kind of sad talk in a way, but still to see that you're actually having a country that uh, is functioning in a way that you're really trying to keep up the economy and you're doing everything for your soldiers and you keep working with the pain, which unfortunately probably will increase, but maybe we can help each other over the borders after the war. I have uh, two short, not short questions. Uh, my question seems to be difficult today. <laughs> <laughs> but the first one, which you of course cannot answer as well, but how do you actually think the war will end? Do you think that Russia will get so much casualties and loss that they will withdraw? Of course, saying that they won or whatever, I don't know. Or do you think that you need to sign a treaty where you have to leave some areas of the country? Or what are your thoughts about the end of the war? Um, I think we have uh, already suffered so much. Uh, we have so many people killed. We have so many people injured that we cannot afford to sign any document and, and lease any Ukrainian territory. It's totally un unacceptable. We didn't have a military power in 2014 when the Crimea and Donbass was occupied and we just had to observe it because we didn't have enough power. Now with this Western support, we have more military power, and I really hope and believe that this war will end with return of all territories of Ukraine and with withdrawal of uh, Russian troops back to Russia. There are a lot of people in Russia, and unfortunately, they do not respect and use it as a disposable people on, on the front. and. Unfortunately, I think Russians will spend many, many more, again, and armors and, and, and thousands of soldier lives in, in this war. And they will not, again, draw back by their own will, but they will only do so by the power of Ukrainian army and Ukrainian military supplied with Western power. So I think this war will end with... Uh, Ukraine, with all its territories, as it was in 1991. Uh, new Ukraine will born, where the restoration will start, and where a lot of agricultural advances will be made, where a lot of industrial advances and new plants and new buildings and everything. And I expect that after the end of the war, we will have an influx of all the people who, no, of course not all, let's be realistic, but like maybe 80-90% of people who had fled will, would return and I expect at least 2-3 millions plus from other European countries or from other countries who will come to Ukraine because there will be a lot of job openings during the restoration of economy and uh, I think some people will live in Ukraine and will continue to live there. That's my prognosis and I really hope that it will be uh, this way. Like you said in the beginning that then this might have been that terrible war that you say that almost everyone has to do to gain their own freedom. So that would 
kind of be the new start of Ukraine as a sovereign country that no one actually ever will attack again. Exactly. I hope so. Where real democracy and freedom will rule and will European values will rule and and, uh, prosperity will be everywhere. Mm, Great. And then, then my last question, even though I like this pod and I like that the number of listeners are increasing, but I don't think that the European leaders will change anything after listening to us. <laughs> so if we have the ordinary listener around the world or Europe, if you would have any advice, what should we do to support you or any good words for the listeners now when you have the chance? Yes, please raise the awareness. Please don't be silent. If you will be weekly posting on your social media, reposting the news from Ukraine and the official website to get the uh, information is war.ukraine.ua. You can see all the latest updates. It's in English. You can just repost it. It would be fine. And second part, if you do have real financial opportunity, please donate for Ukrainian army. Please donate for Ukrainian volunteer organization again. All the official organization and accounts and ways of payment and donations can be found on official website war.ukraine.ua. So that would be my advice. Please don't be silent. Weekly repost news about Ukraine. And please, if you're able, please donate donate something one time or, or, or monthly or, or whatever you can. Mm. So that's very practical advice. Very good. So war.ukraine.ua. UA, UA, yes. Ukraine. I have something called insight episodes where I talk every second week about the last guest and my own thoughts. And uh, I will talk about how to engage in help with Ukraine. There is some European initiative that I will talk about. We have different initiatives on a personal level with both patients I've met and co-workers who work with helping Ukrainian refugees coming to Sweden and what they're doing. I will talk a lot about these things. So please listen to this insight episode a week after this. I must also say, being so ignorant, I wrote Vladimir to you once. (laughs) And then I suddenly understood that you wrote Volodymyr. And I understood that Vladimir is kind of a more Russian name and that you of course do not want to use that uh, way of saying it volodymyr is more ukrainian and people here might think oh okay so he's uh, a bit sensitive and now he wants to change his name but i actually have a story where i have a neighbor in the northern part of sweden who was called adolf (laughs) during the second world war and he totally changed his name and was afterwards called uffe and no one ever said his name after that. So even small things like these change because of the war, because you don't want to get involved in thinking about all these bad things connected even even with your name. So if I ever said it wrongly, I will now call you Volodymyr, okay? <laughs> and I know <laughs> that you. you actually didn't mind me saying that because you're, you're just laughing, but we need to understand that a lot of things happen when a country is in war that we don't even understand because we are in peace for so long here in Sweden. But war is not far away, unfortunately. Yeah, and big change starts with small things. 
Yeah. So if I may say, my dear friend, although we haven't seen each other for real, or my dear colleague, is there anything that you feel that I haven't asked you or something that you really would like to say that I didn't mention? Or do you think that we kind of made a good session out of this? I think we had a wonderful session. There are, of course, a lot of things that we didn't touch. And uh, mm. it would be a great pleasure to record another podcast in some future. Uh, maybe if, if uh, there will be a, an interest and, and need. And I really, really enjoyed being with you today. And uh, I would like to thank you for your questions. That was just wonderful. And uh, again, I would like to thank all the listeners for support. And I hope that our today podcast maybe has put in some more light on the situation with pain medicine in Ukraine and with war in Ukraine. Mm. Thank you so much. So take care and hopefully we'll talk sometime later. Okay. Thank Bye. you. Bye.